Welcome to the Majlis, podcast of the Muslim Society's Global Perspectives Project at Queen's University. Majlis is the Arabic word for an assembly, literally a gathering of people sitting together, and it was used for the sessions of learned scholars, philosophers, intellectuals, and artists brought together to discuss and debate. Our podcast intends to accomplish the same purpose of bringing together experts and scholars for discussion and conversation about the politics, histories, cultures of the Middle East, Islamic world, and Muslim diasporas. You can find the Majlis on your favorite podcast site, including Spotify and Apple iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe and let us know what you think by giving us a rating. Salam, hello, bonjour, welcome to this episode of The Majlis. I'm Adnan Hussein, Director of the Muslim Society's Global Perspectives Project at Queen's University, and I'm your host for this episode. Um, I'm really delighted to be welcoming a colleague, um, a wonderful scholar uh, here at Queen's University, Dr. Shobana Xavier, uh, to talk a little bit more about her interests in Sufism. She, we were lucky in this community recently to have a public talk and lecture from her that was really well attended and covered so much interesting ground on Sufism in Canada and perhaps even broadly in North America. And so I wanted to continue the conversation but also talk a little bit about previous work and just generally get a better sense um, of her scholarship and her interests. So welcome uh, Shobana to this uh, episode of The Majlis. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm excited to be here. Thanks, Adnan. Uh, it's wonderful. Um, you know, I should remind uh, listeners, uh, if they don't already know, that um, you are the author of an important book in the study of uh, Sufism in the U.S., Sacred Spaces and Transnational Networks in American Sufism, Bawa Muhayyaddin and Contemporary Shrine Cultures, and that you also have done a broader study of contemporary Sufism called Contemporary Sufism, Piety, Politics, and Popular Culture that you're the co-author of. And you have this ongoing project that I already alluded to. So kind of my first question, you know, just um, looking at this range of, of, of interest is, you know, how did you become interested in Sufism um, at the outset? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a good question. It's always nice to reflect on like your biographical, <laughs> your own story. Um, so I was at York University and taking, um, always been interested in religion and like different religions. Um, as a child, I left, read um, The Life of Pi uh, by Jan Mertral. And I was like, oh, that's me. Like, you know, just kind of curious about the world and all of that. Um, and so at York, I just pursued, uh, I think I was one of the few students who started at uh, an undergrad program and declared religious studies as an, you know, a major, which is kind of rare. Most students stumble into it after taking a course here and there. Um, but I was also interested in becoming a teacher. So I was pursuing um, Bachelor of Education as well. So took a lot of different world religions courses. I had a, a minor in Jewish studies, like all of this stuff. Um, and uh, I, I took a course with Mila Butrovich. I know that you're a good friend of and a colleague with yeah. um, at York. And she has a great course on Islamic mysticism. And I just don't know. I was just kind of floored by many things um, as you know, one could be with poetry and music, but also just kind of the historical development. So I think a lot had to do with the way that she presented Islam um, and Sufism. 
at the same time, I was also taking a course with um, uh, Jasper Gill on South Asian religions. So I think in my mind that there was just such an alignment that was naturally unfolding as a student and to see those snaps just going, um, kind of locating my own South Asian like ancestry and experiences as a Tamil Sri Lankan student, but also then thinking about um, mysticism in this way and how it was unfolding in South Asia and the pluralism. So it was just like a semester that was really kind of more towards the end of my undergrad and I was preparing to do um, teachers call it like, you know, applying to teach and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and Professor Butrovich was like, have you thought of an MA? And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> That's how we get them. Yeah, I know, that was the initial trap that was set. I often joke with her. I was like, this is all your fault. Um, <laughs> but um, she just was like, you know, I mean, it's a possibility and it does you no harm just to think about it. And I was like, oh, I, I'm not interested. But I kind of put this application together with hoping to work with her. And then, of course, was applying to teaching jobs. And it just ended up in Toronto. It was really hard to get teaching jobs. But I got into this 1A MA program, Humanities, with the focus on religion and values at York. And I think that was really kind of the beginnings of, like, me thinking seriously about this as a potential, like, not just personal interest, but it could be something else, which is, like, I could do research in it, you know? and I think it was really also the alignment of the South Asian and then also um, a Sufism. There was a student in that class who we were doing independent projects at the end and a student had brought in, they were doing a project on Bao Muhayyadeen and they were playing a YouTube video. Um, and I don't know if Professor Putrovich remembers this, but um, she the, the video didn't have any subtitles and Bawa only speaks in Tamil, right? And mm-hmm. so there was a moment where she kind of just looked at the class and was like, but kind of, you know, not expecting a response. It was like, does anybody know what's going on? And I was kind of like, oh, yeah, like I understand some of what. And that was like mm-hmm. really like a bizarre experience partly because he looked like he reminded me a lot of my grandfather. And then I was able to translate in Tamil. Like, you know, a lot of things is happening as a student then that you're kind of like, what's going on? And I think that was also a moment of particular curiosity of uh, Bawa Muhayyadeen. Um, And so then I was trying to pursue it for my MA, but there wasn't just much work on it. So it was always in the back of my mind. So that was also the course that I was introduced to Bawa for the first time accidentally also. Yeah. Right. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, firstly, just the felicitous situation that Toronto District School Board's loss is scholarship and uh, our gain. Um, So things happen in life, you know, and you just pursue what's in front of you, the opportunities that are there. Um, But also this just uh, felicity that some other student was interested in, but you actually had a kind of background that allowed you, you know, access to, you know, his words um, and his teachings in a direct way. So that's right. fascinating. Um, so that's yeah. where it started. You began investigating further. Yeah. Um, and so at that point, I was thinking when I was thinking of doing my MA, if it was possible to do an MA project on Bawa. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in this would have been about 2009, 2010. And there was only a couple of articles like Sufism in America was emerging as a field. And Bawa, I think there was like, you know, two or three articles by Gisela Webb and Marcia Hermanson at the time. And so it wasn't like enough to figure out doing an MA program. And Professor Butrovich is, you know, no Sufism, but wasn't like her area of expertise wasn't also on like Sufism in the global West. Like she does all these other amazing things with Bosnian Islam and secularism. And so 
I think there was like a series of things we were like trying to figure out how to make this work. Um, the MA project with her ended up being more about um, South Asian women and, and Sufism and spaces. And so that's kind of this other thing that I'm really interested in. Like I had kind of multiple interests in Sufism um, and just kind of the idea of agency and like what sacred spaces does for women and particularly ritual spaces in South Asia for, for women. Um, but at the time I had reached out to the Baal Muhaydin Fellowship. I kind of like really didn't think about it, but wrote an email to the Fellowship Center in Philadelphia, like kind of absentmindedly. Um, and they had put me in touch with another York University student who's a uh, friend. Um, and so they thought, because they have a center in Toronto, like a branch. Um, at that time it was in like near Bayview and Finch area. Um, and so then I went to the, again, I wasn't really thinking of anything. I just was kind of following along with this thing that I was like, oh, this is curious and things kind of, as it does, I guess, if you're like interested in Sufism, there's alignments that are beyond you and, you know, synchronicities. Mm -hmm. um, so I went to the fellowship and I, I met people. And again, I was the only Sri Lankan Tamil person there. And that kind of really blew my mind that they were following this teacher from, from Northern Sri Lanka, from a village that I was from, and that they were just not, do you know what I mean? There was just yeah. a lot of things that I just couldn't quite place. Yeah. Um, and so it was like, I think I was internally having weird moments of access, but also trying to figure out the movement in relationship to like my own place and like as a member of the diaspora in Toronto. And it was just so out there and nobody else was really like understanding. Um, so I think that that seed was always planted. I didn't realize the significance of it till later when I went to Sri Lanka and found out that um, Bawa's first mosque and village was like right beside my grandfather's house and like mm -hmm. all of this stuff, which I think was really, really cool. So I think a lot of the project around him became a lot of kind of trying to tap into my own um, ancestral roots in Sri Lanka and all of that. Um, and so in my head, I was like, oh, maybe Bawa and my grandfather knew each other, like, you know, they might have crossed paths or something like that, right? Um, but I think I was interested in the fact that I learned about all of this in, in Toronto and then in Philadelphia. And lastly, figured out that I got to Sri Lanka. And I think as a as an immigrant and as a child of, you know, being in diaspora, those stories are really stories about belonging and finding your place in, in the world. So I think that is kind of also part of the narrative that doesn't often come out in my scholarship. But that was kind of behind the scenes what was going on. Oh, that's just so fascinating. I'm so glad you shared that, you know, I mean, um this journey back, you know, in some ways, tracing these links back to a, a sort of uh, origin of your family kind of um, just so fascinating um, that the project, the discovery here led you to make these connections and discoveries that enriched your own sense of your own kind of family and background. Um, it's actually I'm, I'm somewhat envious in the sense that like you just pursued this project that did take you along these <clears throat> routes back. I mean, uh, I've always wanted to try and do some kind of a study of my grandfather, who was a Sufi dervish, Naqshbandi Sufi dervish in Central Asia, who, you know, went on pilgrimage, but wandered around the Middle East, uh, you know, Persian world um, as a dervish for 12 years or so before returning. Um, and so, so, you know, it would be a fascinating project to try and, you know, recover something of that, partly also because it was an interesting period in the Middle East, you know, sort of World War One, when after World War One, um, or around that time, perhaps when uh, it was possible to kind of move around, but also the world was really changing at, at the same time. So anyway, that's so wonderful that you shared that. Um, 
And I wonder, you know, um, your project, uh, your first book on, on was, you know, on the sacred spaces, I guess, both in Philadelphia and in Sri Lanka, but also connecting them through these transnational networks. Um, so what did you find was, um, you know, how did, in what ways did it make sense to try and bring those two things together? Um, and what did Sufism or a Sufi community like the one you were studying look like in diasporic conditions? What, what, what sort of was relevant about its diasporic um, character? Or at least the master was diasporic because as you point out, nobody was uh, really from Sri Lanka in the actual <laughs> community. So, you know, yeah. tell us a little bit more about those um, elements and tensions of connection and disconnection maybe in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, so for listeners who may not know, um, Bawa Muhaideen came to uh, Philadelphia in 1971, um, arrived because they were a group of interested spiritual seekers in Philadelphia, um, mainly like a group that was affiliated with the yoga community that invited him. Um, and they thought that, you know, you know, this was a period where there was a lot of spiritual experimentation going on with different um, practices, you know, yoga, Buddhism. Um, and so Bawa was kind of brought into that context. Um, another reality is also that there was a, a Sri Lankan Muslim a student in Philadelphia who was teaching, um, who was a PhD student and was teaching, I, I think at Cheney State, so which is a historically black institution. And so he was also thinking that Bawa as a, a racialized person could perhaps offer some wisdom for kind of the racial tensions that was unfolding in Philadelphia. So there was like a two-pronged project that was going on that I don't know if people were always aware of, but it was both a spiritual, but perhaps a, a social political as well. And so they had brought Bawa. And so a lot of the story of Bawa in Sri Lanka, I mean, in, in the U.S. really starts with this moment. Um, but I was always kind of like, well, he must have had a there must have been something going on before he kind of came, right? Like, it can't just be that he came in Philadelphia and that was the beginning of his ministry or the work that he did. Um, and so I was kind of interested in this, partly because I had gone to Sri Lanka in um, 2000 and I think 11 was the first time. And this is the first time that I had gone back to Sri Lanka since I came to Toronto as a child and all of this stuff. And um, and I was living in the UK then and so decided to go. But um, the war had ended in 2009 and it was not a smart thing for me to be like, just trying to go back to Sri Lanka, especially the North. Again, doing things kind of absentmindedly and not really thinking it through. But I had gone to the North where um, was the village that I was born in and, you know, my um, my my family traces the origins too. And I had seen like, you know, some of the spaces. And so I was like, in my head, I was like, oh, like, but I know that there's a story. I don't know what the story is, but I like know that there's a story of Bawa. Um, but it was also hard to kind of figure out like a PhD program to be able to cultivate a project, which seemed that I was going on a hunch. And also like, do you know what I mean? It was a little bit novel, but perhaps people are like, ah, this is not right kind of thing. Um, and, you know, I was very lucky that um, Wilfred Laurier, uh, um, my supervisor there, Mina Sharifi Funk, accepted me, but the program itself is based on like religious diversity in North America. So in the program, I was really like encouraged to think about the North American development of this community. But the whole time I was like, and again, it's probably because of my own identities. I was like, no, but there's a Sri Lankan story here to tell. And I would like to tell that story. So there was a lot of resistance in kind of some members of that program that perhaps I should not be doing the South Asia, but I should just be looking at the North America. And, and I wasn't super happy about it. And my mentor supervisor, of course, uh, 
um, Mino is completely like supportive on board. And so we were kind of pushing like against the grain of trying to tell the story of Sufism in North America, but in a transnational context, like, uh -huh. like, you know, I don't think any geographical space exists in a silo. And I think if we're talking about movement across oceans, like that is important to like map in some way, right? Um, yeah, well, I mean, you know, the diasporic, uh, some of the diaspora studies tends to only look at their reception and existence in this context, in the diaspora context, but surely there are things that are relevant about where they're coming from and how and why that happened. So it just seems methodologically more complete to try and look at both, uh, you know, what was happening in Sri Lankan context. And so what did you find when you did... Um, you know, how did you bring these these two elements together? Clearly, it, you know, you had to justify doing so more than yeah. one. So, yeah. so you had to think carefully about how you wanted to uh, express that relationship. So what did you discover and how did you put it together? I think the way that I presented it at my thesis defense, which got a lot of pushback and some people were not supportive of at all, um, it was that that I needed if if I if the claim was American Sufism is different and that there's something distinct about American Sufism, then the only way to prove its distinctness is to do a point of comparison. And then in my case, and in the case of the Baal Muhaydin Fellowship, which is the institution that formed around Baal Muhaydin, the only point of comparison could be its site of origins, which is in Sri Lanka. So I had to keep kind of claiming this is a North American studies program. The emphasis is still in North America, um, even though I wasn't really buying it, and then had to make a point that I was like, well, I have to account for the Sri Lanka, and Sri Lanka will not be like the center of the study, but at least will be a point that I need to go and see, and I could then compare and see if there's what's happening in America is different. Like did Bao's ministry change from Sri Lanka to Philadelphia? Was his style, his teaching, his metaphysics, his ritual practices, did any of those transform or did they maintain a process of continuity? And so this is then what, as you were saying, I was then looking for transmission processes. And what's really interesting and what the book really argues is that actually so much of what Bawa did in Northern Sri Lanka institutionally and in terms of ritual practices very much parallels what he did in Philadelphia, right? Like, and I would not have known that if I didn't go and like see what was happening, right? Um, there are of course differences because we're talking about a cultural and social and political context that's different. It was a post-war context, you know, all of this stuff. So there was a moments of disruption that was caused by violence. Um, but I think that violence, that disruption also resulted in kind of his active participation and realizing that, well, perhaps his teachings won't survive here because of something that's ha happening to this island. And so maybe like we should go um, like, you know, I think he had kind of a sense of what was coming down the pipe and he was like, I could maybe preserve some of the teachings in North America as well. Um, but, you know, he had a. Um, kind of an ashram or like a, a place like a what we might think of like as a lodge or something where he would have visitors come and talk to him um he practiced vegetarianism so he was adamant that people um uh, are fed you know it was a very common practice in a lot of religious spaces to make sure that there is food for people um, and then it's a vegetarian food and so he was that vegetarianism was really important because he wanted to make sure that he was inclusive of anybody who may come to him and so he was advocating kind of a, a religious and an ethnic pluralism in Sri Lanka that if you're a Hindu or if you're a Muslim, like you come and eat this meal because this is actually an inclusive meal. 
um, and he taught like, you know, he taught messages on like the oneness of God. Um, sometimes he performed exorcisms, which is not something that he started doing in the US. And that, cause that was a little bit, you know, but in Sri Lanka and Jaffna, he was known to be a specialist and doing exorcisms. And there's a lot of stories that a lot of people came to him because they needed like very practical help, um, marriage issues and things like that, you know? Um, but he also was, you know, had maulids for the Prophet Muhammad of the Qadr Dilani, and he was also doing, um, you know, um, rituals that like we would think of like are have a particular um, expression, you know, um, you know, Sufi, like we may read it as Sufi or whatnot, but things like Mauluds and things like performing dhikr, even though he had a predominantly Hindu audience or he had like non-Muslims in the, in the North. Um, um, and then there was a branch in Colombo, which is the capital city. Those tended to be particularly Muslim intellectuals who are of a particular social class. And so they were very much interested in hearing Bawa talk about philosophy and giving proper lectures whereas in the north his audience is very different but all along the way he like you know he's um, leading mauluds um you know there's like his right and he's also coming into the north american context and he's like slowly easing into those aspects as well um there was a a, a mosque place that he constructed in the north as well but he called it god's house because he wanted to be an inclusive space um, and he also understood that to have a special relationship with Mariam, the, the mother of Jesus. Um, and there was kind of different understandings of what that was. Um, and it's hard because with Bawa, you don't know how often when he's speaking in the first person, if he's referring to him as like an entity of this moment, or if he's like talking about um, perhaps um, having the presence of someone who's like coming from a lineage like Abdurkader Jalani. So Abdurkader Jalani and the Qadriya are something that is mentioned often, but I, for instance, couldn't quite figure out if he saw himself as like institutionally initiated. But we have a lot of um, South Asian Sufi um, tarikas or orders that have like a loose affiliation and not like a full on like institute, like, you know, um, like an established lineage. And you kind of see that in Sri Lanka. So in, so in Philadelphia, when he's not emphasizing, for instance, a particular tarika model, it kind of makes sense that he's coming from a Sri Lankan context where that model of a tarika is not as like, you know, um, obvious in some ways where everybody's kind of like, oh yeah, I like, you know, after Kato Jelani's big deal, we're going to do the Malud for him. But there's like not a particular living shape that we're following or we're not institutionalized um, in this particular way, right? And so um, there was like a lot of different aspects, but I think the only reason I was able to start mapping some of it and I don't feel like I did completely, it was incomprehensive, like one would have to study this more and more, but is that I was able to do a compare and contrast, like what's happening in Sri Lanka and is it happening in, in Philadelphia? And if so, what, like what are the sociological reasons? Um, and I gravitated towards spaces because they were obvious to me. There was like a mosque space and there was like a, a lodge place, like an ashram. And that was very much the same structure that showed up in Philadelphia where he, they bought a um, former Jewish um, community center in kind of near um, St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. And that became the place that Bawa would stay. It would kind of serve as his, his ashram. They ended up building a mosque space. Um, there was also a farm in, in, in Coatesville, which was an hour west of Philly. And the same thing in Sri Lanka, there was a farm. So I was just noticing institutionally, there were kind of parallel spaces. And so those spaces gave me the opportunity to like ground my comparative analysis as opposed to being like, oh, there's so many things I could compare. I could just look at the spaces and compare what's happening in the spaces 
and do that in Sri Lanka and do that in Philadelphia. And that could be the point in which I try to figure out if what's happening in American Sufism is indeed new or distinct, or is it somehow a continuity of something that Bao has brought forth as rituals and spaces from a South Asian context and trans kind of um, added it to a North American context. That's interesting that um, you found that there were quite a few continuities, uh, despite very different uh, cultural environments uh, between the two locations. Um, but I'm wondering if also part of it was something to do with uh, the long history and tradition of what you described in terms of South Asian Islam and Sufism, and particularly of that multi-religious kind, uh, you know, orientation within uh, the, the very history of Islam coming to the Indian subcontinent. Of course, there were some, you know, ruling dynasties and so on, but more powerfully, perhaps at a local, meaningful social level, were these figures, um, holy figures, who would come and attract a variety of, you know, orientations around them, and that they, you know, there's just a lot of stories about uh, the Chishti sheikhs and. Shah Nimmatullah Wali about having, you know, Hindus, Muslims, uh, and, you know, others, uh, varieties within each of these traditions still finding some spiritual value in the teachings and being made welcome in those spaces. Do you think that is one of the ways in which, uh, despite the fact that there were very different cultural environments, that one thing is, is that each of these were multi-religious kinds of communities that he was somebody who was well practiced in figuring out how you relate to multiple religious communities and orientations with a sense of still having some unity or coherence of his teachings is that something that that may have been i wonder if that's one of the things that may have contributed to his uh, method and success of his method in the philadelphia context Absolutely, absolutely. I think you've hit it on the the nail on the head. People often ask me, like in the book, I have an entire chapter on like who Bawa is, and a lot of it is like very metaphysical, like you know the insan al kamal, the perfected mm. human being, or um, the kutub, like the axial pole of the universe. Um, and sometimes I'm just like, he just seemed to be a really good teacher who knew his audience. Do you know what I mean? Um, and and I think a good teacher is uh, someone who's aware of who is sitting in front of them and kind of figuring out what it is that they need, and then still delivering the essence of the message but it could be delivered in a different particularity do you know what I mean yeah, um, yeah. and I think um, a lot of Sufi teachers and you know saints over time we kind of listen to stories about them and it just seems like they were really attuned teachers that were aware like what who what their disciples or marids really needed and I think Bawa is exactly that and and the second point is that I think it's really hard when we're thinking about Sufism in the diaspora context be it Western Europe or um, North American and the assumption is that any kind of pluralism or diversity or universalism that we're seeing, it tends to be like framed as like a Western quality and a Western development. And I think that also is like a deep, like um, it reflects a deep amnesia or like a fissure with the reality of how actually Islam and Sufism is experienced in places like South Asia um, and in 
places that we think of as the Middle East is that is there is a deep pluralism and South Asia is a great example of that where Sufis tend to, to be these intermediaries between different religious communities. Um, the emergence of a tradition like Sikhism in South Asia is also like an example that like Hinduism and Islam actually blended together and created like a new movement and like the Guru Granth Sahib, the, the sacred text of the Sikhs has like Sufi poetry in it, right? And so um, anything that's so important. And so it's part of the other thing that I appreciated about going to Sri Lanka. I think many people thought that I was doing it because it was like a personal, I'm searching for me, but I think part of it was that actually like the Sri Lankan context is so necessary to understand the, the American context. Bawa was first discovered by two Hindu disciples who were on a pilgrimage to a, a site that's associated with um, Morgan, but it's also a site that's associated with the prophet Hither, right? And so here's this one site, which is a pilgrimage site that um, Muslims understood as a site for uh, the perennial prophet of you know, Islam or this mystical figure, um, Hither, and then you know Hindus are coming to the same site to encounter Morgan, and they're kind of like seeing it from these two different sites, but they're meeting at a place. And I think this is one of the reasons that I became really, really obsessed with sacred spaces because they just kind of really are multidimensional spaces that articulate the capacious reality of what religions could be in some sites is that it's immensely pluralistic and it's contested like people come with different meanings in it and they may be standing beside somebody who is a different religion but they still are standing there and perhaps are bowing to an icon or lighting a candle and so despite the difference in identities there's also like this thing of unity and I'm like really curious about that right and I think bow um is another example of that. Like how is one figure, a saint, a charismatic figure, however we wanna think about it, also able to bring in all of this diversity and contain it within a single being who is like, you know, the problem that becomes in a post-institutional context is what happens when that, when that singular thing that holds an institution together leaves and then all these people have different interpretations of what the teaching was and what the ritual was and are now struggling to make meaning and maintain uniformity, right? And, and I think that's where the, the fellowship is at right now. But I think like understanding that context, understanding Sri Lankan Sufism or just understanding the Sri Lankan religious landscape really helps you then better understand that this pluralism is not novel to America and it's not Western. It's, it's actually just inherent in like places that Islam is practiced and other religions are practiced, right? I think, and so I think as a religious studies scholar, that was so important to me as well. Yeah, that's uh, um, really vital and important, um, you know, to decenter the idea of universalism as just a Western kind of imposition or construct. Now there may be a universalism that is being promoted, but that's what's so great about looking at things from a global perspective is to see, you know, uh, multiple different kinds of universal uh, pluralistic approaches. And, you know, obviously South Asia, what a wonderful site to observe this. I should remind listeners that if you haven't already uh, heard the episode that we had recently on bowel spirituality and music, uh, we were very lucky to have uh, Ulam Rabbani um, talk about that particular South Asian pluralistic tradition. And so this is definitely uh, something that's very much a part of the religiosity of uh, South Asia. But I want to turn now, you know, to focusing more on the North American context, because 
uh, despite what, you know, maybe some skeptics of your work may have thought that this was merely, uh, you know, a way for you to recover sort of identity and origins. And in fact, actually, your trajectory since then has not been necessarily to do a lot of other South Asia based projects, but to really look at the wider history of Sufism in its contemporary manifestations, as well as the, you know, background um, in North America. And so you have uh, been a co-author of that, uh, of this work on contemporary Sufism, um, Piety, Politics and Popular Culture, which of course can be global, um, uh, but also, you know, your current project is really about uh, Sufism in Canada. And um, so, you know, what has, uh, you know, is this just to sort of uh, assuage all of those uh, Laurier uh, people who said, well, this is about a North American religious experience? What has pulled you into really exploring Sufism in this other other context after your first project that was, you know, transnational and connected these multiple locations? Um, the response to this is not as fun. It's actually just was kind of practical. You know what I mean? Um, I've, um, I was teaching in the U.S. for... I don't know, I think three years or four years. I don't remember how many, I think three years. Um, and Sufism in Sri Lanka is always at the back of my mind. And it's something that's this ongoing project. Uh, I have spent time in Sri Lanka, some of my summers documenting Sufi shrines because there's a you know a pretty prominent anti-Sufi movement and a lot of shrines were being destroyed and things like that. Um, but doing work like that is also harder because of like access and getting there and spending time um, and moving around, like doing ethnographic project as a, as a woman and all of this stuff, like it's like tricky. Um, so that's always in the back of my mind. But I think, you know, because of my relationship to Sri Lanka, writing on it always feels like harder for me because, you know, there's like um, a lot of just like personal stuff too, right? Um, so I, I often joke that that's like the lifetime project that it will be one day if it's meant to be, we'll have this book on Sufism in Sri Lanka, but it feels mm -hmm. like a huge thing to do. Um, yeah. But I think I've also always just cultivated these two interests, like, and I think it's just part of like my own location. Mm -hmm. um, so Sufism in, in America and North America is always of interest. Um, the Canadian one came up partly because, you know, I mean, I was starting to think about it when I was in New York. Um, and I was thinking, oh, maybe I could do an article or whatnot. Um, and a colleague who I write with often and who is also a scholar in Sufism in North America, uh, William Murray Dixon and I were like playing with the idea of trying to get like shirk money and all of that. Um, and we applied a few times and it didn't quite work. Um, and then I landed at Queens. And then I was thinking, oh, well, does it make sense to continue working on America, even though I have like this deep interest in kind of American Sufism. Um, and then so I was thinking about Canadian Sufism. And I was thinking partly because I'm, kind of move in these circles in Toronto, right? Like mm -hmm. so much of it, like there's obviously a lot of academic stuff, but there's also a lot of like my personal stuff. And so like, I knew a lot of Sufi communities in Toronto and um, many of these people are amazing friends of mine. And so it was kind of hard to be like, why isn't there nothing like on them? Like, do you know what I mean? Like there's a deep history of Sufism in Canada. Like it doesn't make sense that there's only like a few articles here or there. Um, and so that's really what kind of prompted this as part of me as being an ethnographer, wanting to tell the story of people that I had, like, was spending time with in, in these different spaces. Um, and it started off slowly, but I think 
it just kind of morphed into this thing that I was like, oh, I didn't realize there were so, like, even I was like, there's so much stuff in Canadian Sufism that no one has written about. And it was kind of overwhelming because I don't know where to start, right? Um, and so I had to keep kind of narrowing it down, um, partly because I was like, well, what is a manageable thing that I could do um, and maybe inspire um, other, like, young students and other scholars to take it seriously, right? And I felt like I was doing something similar with the Bob Mahidi Fellowship, which is like, can we just take this seriously as, like, something that we should study and examine um, and so my interest in Canadian Sufism also felt the same like I felt like I was like there was a few people that I was interested and I need to like convince people that there's something here and that we should take seriously and maybe other people could come and pick up threads and kind of explore um, so I was kind of also thinking well what do I have access to and I was like well maybe I could just do a project on Toronto because that's kind of what I know really well like I know the landscape and I would kind of know some of uh, most of the leaders and stuff and they know me well and that's always like tricky with like research and stuff like that in terms of like you know how people perceive you. So I started doing interviews um, and then a lot of the interview folks were telling oh you have to go talk to this person in Montreal you have to go talk talk to this person in Vancouver, or this is a person that I really started with. And I was like, oh, okay. So, you know, I went to Vancouver, I went to Montreal. So I was like, then really then getting deep into like oral histories with people and ethnographic stuff. And I was like, this is just a lot. Like I have to like narrow it down even further. Um, so another part of me that's always been uh, like an aspect of Sufism has always been Rumi. I just, I love pop culture and, you know, I'm teaching that at Queen's Year, religion, pop culture. Right. It's like, I love that course. Um, and I'm always kind of interested in these questions of consumption and commodification. And like, I think Rumi is like this huge thing that's a part of it. Um, and I, you know, get asked to write on that sometimes about like the commodification of Rumi. And, you know, I was always like, oh, is, is, is there enough in me to write a book? So mm -hmm. I just kind of saw both of those coming together, which is kind of the Rumi piece and the consumption piece and the Canadian Islam uh, Sufism piece. Partly that, partly because a lot of the Sufi spaces in Toronto that I was seeing much attendance and interest in was at these whirling events, these Sama events that some uh, students who are affiliated with um, Mavlavi order or like a branch of Rumi's order in some way were participating in. And I just became super curious. So I felt that there was an alignment there and I began to pursue it as a way to contain the project essentially, because it was becoming too much. Like it would take me forever to do. Um, and yeah. that's really how the Sufism in Canada project kind of merged. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I think it's interesting that you talk about it as the two kind of components, one about this Rumi and popular culture, because that's been very important, broadly speaking in, you know, the way in which a form of Sufism has been articulated to Canadian society, to North American society globally, um, with the popularity of Rumi's poetry and translation. Um, I think there was some statistic even in like the late 1990s, early 2000s, uh, Rumi was like the most uh, popular, at least in terms of book sales, uh, you know, poet in, in North America. Yeah. And um, so there's that whole piece, it seems, um, that can't be ignored. Uh, but that's also kind of a global story. So I'm wondering what, um, you know, how do you, uh, you know, bring into uh, connection the local um, experiences of Sufism in Canada with also the fact that um, the commodification and circulation of Rumi um, is something across the Anglophone world for the, those who consume and read and purchase um, like all those Coleman Barks translations and so on. That's not unique. 
to Canada. So what's the relationship? How do you put those two together? So one of the things that I decided to do with this book is that I then decided to focus on groups that are overtly engaging, Sufi communities that are engaging with Rumi. So I felt that that was a way for me to then say, there's no way that I could cover all Sufi communities in Canada because it's way too much. Why don't I look at Sufi communities that engage with Rumi either in ritual contexts, which is mainly through whirling, or through contacts of poetry or the Sufi teachers themselves are like drawing a lineage to Turkey or like the, you know, and Turkey and therefore to Rumi, right? I and see. So this was a way in which then I could contain the project a little bit and not be like, oh, I have to cover everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and But this also meant that it was like widely uh, like unexpected even for me. So there are some communities um, that, you know, are active in having the Sama as like one of their primary, like the turning practice is one of their primary activities to do when they meet. And that becomes a thing that kind of um, is, brings the community together. There's other also communities that are engaging with Rumi in kind of interesting ways. And one example that I talked about during the lecture, public lecture I gave was like the Nakshbandi, Hakani group in Vancouver who has a Rumi Rose cafe, like a, a store. And um, and so they're not a group that you would have originally think as some someone who would have, you know, yeah, any kind of participation in this kind of um, what's happening with Rumi. Um, and so I, you know, when I spoke to the um, Sheikh there, I kind of asked about, you know, why is Rumi the name of the store? And like, you're selling Rumi teas, like what's up with that? Like, you know, stuff like that. So essentially any community, um, there's also a, um, a Persian a community known as a Zawiya Society in Vancouver and what they've done historically for like I think the last two decades is been taking um, Rumi's Masnawi and have been reading it and the teacher has been teaching it in Persian and now recently has started an English class that one of the students have taken on. Now again this is not a traditional they wouldn't identify themselves as a Sufi community but they're a community that's actively participating and engaging with Rumi in some way and so I wanted to see how Sufis themselves are doing this work of like actively also popularizing and what their perception of what they're doing is with Rumi and what how that informs their Sufiness, so to speak, right? Um, and so like, so Rumi then really becomes kind of a prism and a container for me to start then asking some questions about how Sufism is unfolding uh, ritually, spatially, and also in terms of commodification. Uh, a lot of poets that, um, I met and spoke with uh, particularly poets who perform at small venues or um, artists and musicians at like either the Aga Khan Museum or the Small World Music in Toronto, these smaller venues, they also were tapping into this idea of Rumi poetry and a Sufi identity. And again, they wouldn't, weren't necessarily identifying themselves as being Sufi, but they were doing this practice that was presenting a particular kind of Sufism that was being received. And so I wanted to know like what they were doing and why they were doing and if they themselves thought of themselves as informing Sufism in any way. Um, So I think this has always been a question for me. And I think Canada then just becomes one example. I do think you're absolutely right. I'm not suggesting that this is uh, unique in a Canadian context, but this is like one way, like somebody should do something similar in the American context or the British context to see like, what are the lived realities of the popularization of Rumi actually amongst Sufi communities and Muslim communities. Um, And in some ways, I think when Franklin Lewis wrote the book on Rumi, like this iconic book on Rumi, the last kind of chapter in that book really is where I'm kind of picking up and taking it to the Canadian context. Right, right. The legacies of Rumi and reception of Rumi beyond the Islamic, well, the, you know, kind of 
historic uh, Islamic world. Yeah, that's that's very important. I wonder if, you know, there, I mean, there might be something that would be valuable for somebody in literature, you know, in particular, to do a global Rumi uh, reception project, maybe a little bit like Juan Cole's uh, forthcoming book on Omar Khayyam, you know, the legend, as well as the translations and the reception and what why certain constituencies and communities were so attracted to Khayyam in the 19th and early 20th century. Um, you know, of course, I wonder, I mean, I think there have been articles, but, uh, you know, a really good sort of broader study also of Khalil Gibran, you know, Gibran, Khalil Gibran and the Prophet. I mean, these kind of figures that have communicated some sort of East to West uh, global spirituality, it would be useful to and then you know studies that look at the specifics of how this is worked out in a particular context could all contribute to that um perspective um and some of that stuff exists there's an amazing edited volume um i'm forgetting the uh, edit name of the editor it's by sunni press and it's essentially sufi literary masters in america and it's a, such a brilliant job to do like a literary analysis how how people like omar Khayyam, rumi hafaz have been transmitted into the literary sphere in the american context historically into the present moment um and so the contemporary sufism book that um i co-wrote with um mina and worry um, has these two chapters on rumi and precisely does that like maps kind of the historical points to when Rumi was being exposed but not Rumi but you know people like Rabia or Hafez were being exposed in the medieval period and how their stories were influencing um uh, influencing um um uh, like, you know, Europeans and how that is creating a particular trajectory and especially Persian poetry. Um, and in, in that book, I also had a lot of fun trying to figure out what that legacy of Rumi was in the contemporary moment. And so I think I, I think in writing or thinking about Rumi in those ways, I just became really interested. And so I had that kind of on my mind. And so it just became a, a useful framework to maybe understand like Rumi in Canada as a way to think about mm -hmm. Sufism in Canada, right? Like right. it really just gave me a door entry point into accessing these Sufi communities. Yeah. 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 Well, it's fascinating. I mean, we're really going to look forward to learning more about uh, that project. Um, and it's just been very fascinating to uh, spend this um, almost an hour with you um, learning more about your work. Um, how can people uh, keep in touch with uh, you and uh, follow your work um, as it uh, comes out in various venues? Do you have an active uh, social media uh, that you would like to share um, for people? Yeah, um, Twitter is a good place for me. I usually post a lot of my stuff there. Um, uh, and that's just at Shobana Xavier on Twitter. So you should be able to find me. Um, so I usually post a lot of stuff for the new books um, podcast that I interview authors who publish new books. Um, but occasionally I will post things that I've published. But yeah, if folks are interested, they could always email me too and they could find email address on my faculty page at Queen's University. Yeah. Excellent. Um, and we should highlight that you are uh, a co-host of a podcast, uh, New Works in Islamic Studies. How often does it come out and where can people find it? 
Yeah. Um, so at the New Books Network, it has like tons of channels and I'm one of the co-hosts of the New Books in Islamic Studies. It's so fun. It's just like really, and you must also enjoy this. You just get to talk yeah. to people, right? When you're a podcaster. Um, and so uh, it comes out, we have an episode every Friday um, and there's uh, four hosts that we kind of rotate between. So I usually post uh, once a month at least. And essentially it's a new book that's been published um, in Islamic Studies, like really broadly defined. Um, and we just kind of chat with the author and ask them, about what the book is about and and it's a great resource if you are um, teaching any courses like and you're feeling like oh I can't have the students read this entire book um I, I found that the episodes are great to assign for our grad students or undergrad students and stuff like that but yeah is there any recent uh episodes um that you would want to highlight that people should look yeah, up? I mean I've a couple of weeks ago, I talked with Pamela Prickett about um, Islam in uh, Los Angeles. It was super cool and really talked about um, uh, this community that has this legacy in the nation of Islam. Um, and it's called, I think it's called, um, uh, I'm, it's awful that I've now forgotten, but it has South Central in it and the City of Angels in it. And I'm sorry, Pamela, that I've forgotten the name of your book. <laughs> it's a great book and it's a great ethnographic book, actually. It was stunning to kind of see how she managed to do like urban geography and Islam and sociology at the same time so if you're interested in that kind of stuff that was uh, an episode from a couple of weeks ago yeah fantastic well everyone should go check out uh that if you're seriously interested in learning more about you know new scholarship that's coming out all the time on fascinating topics um in islamic studies do check out that podcast and um follow uh, dr xavier's work and we look forward to um hearing more about it and hopefully uh, at some point, she might be a co-host and we can enjoy um, interviewing someone else together and having a good conversation or uh, even hosting on her own. We hope that you will consider the Mudgeless now that you've joined um, here on this episode uh, as a continuing space to talk about interesting issues related to the Middle East, Islamic world, Muslim diasporic um, phenomenon and experiences. So it was wonderful to have this opportunity to chat with you. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Adnan. It was great. Thank you. Listeners, uh, check out uh, you know the podcast, share it, um, and uh, we look forward to talking with you again really soon. Salam. Uh, we'll see you again soon. Bye. Thank you for joining us in the Medjlis, a podcast by MSGP. Muslim Society's Global Perspectives, or MSGP, is an initiative at Queen's University dedicated to connecting the complex history of Islamic societies with the contemporary world. You can connect, learn more, and support us by checking out our website, www.queensu.ca slash MSGP, and stay up to date with our events by following us on Twitter at MSGPQU and on our Facebook, MSGPQU. You can also follow our YouTube channel, The Mejlis.